do with a change of government. <laughs> That'd be top of my shopping list. If you were Santa, that's what I would ask for. Or Satan. <laughs> In this case, it'd be Santa, wouldn't it? Yeah. Satan gave us this lot, I think. Day. Hello, Ollie. Hello. Oh, we're all hushed and, we are and hushed. muted, and uh, that's because we are in a cafe in Stroud, which is in Gloucestershire. It turns out, and we got a very mm. early train this morning, and we're not tired mm. and upset about it. And I've said I'm sorry, mm. and I know I messed that up. Welcome, listener, to your friendly little environment podcast, all about people and the planet, and why it's all confusing. And this week, we're doing something a bit different, aren't we, Ollie? Yes, we are here in lovely Stroud um, because we're here to speak to a very interesting man. And that man is Dale Vince, who is the big boss of Ecotricity, probably the best known of the green energy companies in the UK. Not just the boss of Ecotricity, also the chairman of a football team that only eats tofu, sort of. Uh, and an entrepreneur and all-round um, green hero, really. So we wanted to come along, see what he has to say about all sorts of things. Just the usual disclaimer, we do work for environment charities, but these are very much our own views and Dale Vince's views. So if you've got any beef with anything that's about to happen, uh, take it up with us or with Dale, but not with anyone else. Yes? Very good. Let's see what Dale had to say, eh? So we're here with Dale Vince. Hello, Dale. Yeah, hi, guys. <laughs> nice to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Very well. We uh, we wanted to uh, to, to come and, and meet you and uh, and get to know you a little bit, but for the uh, benefit of our listeners, would you mind just uh, explaining um, a little bit about who you are and, and, and the company and um, your background? Well, um, I founded uh, Ecotricity. Which, uh, which is now a group of companies, but um, we, we, I suppose I started out trying to build a windmill on the hill I lived on um, uh, in Stroud. It was about 20 years ago now. And uh, that quickly morphed into uh, uh, becoming an energy company, world's first green energy company. We started supplying green electricity to, um, households, uh, to businesses in Britain in 1996. Um, uh, we became a green energy company more completely in 2010 when we added green gas to the mix so we now supply green electricity and gas we we design and build our own sources of green electricity like uh, wind and sun parks uh, we've got some green gas mills in planning uh, we've got uh, wave machines and r&d home energy storage devices stuff like that uh, see ourselves very much as a 21st century energy company um, <clears throat> Providing power not just for homes and businesses, but also for transport through the electric highway, which is uh, one of the things we've done recently. Wow, okay. So uh, you mentioned that you started off basically building a windmill on a hill. How, how, did you, how, how did you get into all of this? Why did you build a windmill on a hill? Uh, I suppose the explanation to that um, goes back 10 years prior to that. Uh, I, I spent 10 years living on the road. Uh, I dropped out in the early 80s. Uh, I was part of 
what some people call the peace convoy or, or the kind of new age traveller community. Um, travel around Britain in, in variety of buses and trucks and vehicles and became very self-sufficient and stuff. And by the end of the 10 years, was using a small windmill to power my life. Uh, found myself living on the ceiling Stroud. And whenever you use small windmills to run your life, you're kind of aware of the weather. And when you travel and park in different places, you're also aware of your immediate environment. Is it a windy spot that I'm parked in, for example? Um, and you watch your meter, you know, when the wind blows, it goes up. And when you turn something on, it goes down. And so you're very connected to things like that. And it was living on this hill in the early 90s. I popped down to Cornwall and saw Britain's first wind farm built with really big windmills. And I uh, thought to myself, just had one of those epiphany moments, you know, I could spend another 10 years living this low impact lifestyle myself. Uh, as in, uh, you know, my own life was low impact or I could drop back in and try and build a big windmill and change the way electricity was made. That sounds quite different to how I imagine a lot of your um, peers, I guess, and competitors in the energy industry, um, what their background is and how they how they approach things. How does that? How do people um, interact with you? How do they treat you? Do do people think you're uh, a hippie? Do they think you're uh, a very serious and uh, meaningful competitor, or, or what? How does it how does it go down when you're with the suits? I guess. Well, I imagine it's changed over time, but I know that it's changed over time. So at the beginning, it was a kind of crazy idea, wasn't it? Windmills were a bit new; they were the territory of hippies and academics and uh, you know left leaning people, and they've become much more mainstream. Uh, Twenty years from then, round about now, you know, lots of big companies, serious financial players, are involved in the sector. Governments all over the world. Uh, you know, kicking off renewable energy programs and onshore wind is at the heart of all of those because it's the most abundant and cost-effective of all forms of renewable energy. So my journey has been very similar, really, to renewable energy and windmills in itself. You know, 20 years ago, people laughed at the idea. Uh, quite literally, this first windmill, nobody thought it was possible. Um, uh, but you know, of course, of course, it was. And fast forward to today, and because we know it's possible, and and it's the uh, cheapest form of energy we can build for, from a new source even cheaper than uh, new gas and uh, yeah so in in business it would have been the same you know people not really take me very seriously but I never never bothered about that um, but today I suppose it's hard not to take me seriously isn't it? I mean kind of I still am who I am I dress the way I want say what I think um, but uh, we make progress ecodesity we do i think great things uh, we show what can be done and you can't really argue with that you know you you can try and judge a book by the cover but uh, there's a substance about us that uh, that shows a lot of our thinking is right and i would say also that what you touched upon there is the great differentiator between us and um, other energy companies it's one of purpose i got into this to change the world quite literally i want to change the way energy is made and used in britain that's my outcome. It's not a bottom line thing. Most energy companies are run by people and for people that are only interested in the bottom line. It's about making money. So that's a fundamental difference. So you were talking there about uh, onshore wind being, um, being very uh, cheap. It's obviously been at the centre of a lot of kind of political rows for the last few years. Um, do you, I mean, do you, do you bother yourself with the politics of renewables? Why is it also why is it also difficult? Why do, why is it such a contentious issue? And, and how do you engage in that? Or do you just get on with doing what you do? Yeah, 
Up until very recently, we exactly did that, just got on with what we were doing. And, and I would say that wind energy has always had its opponents since I've been doing this, and they've always said the same things, like it kills birds, ruins TV signals, you know, kind of doesn't work either, you know, uses more carbon than it saves, that kind of rubbish. But, and none of that has ever really had an impact. I would say a few years ago, um, elements of the press began to tarnish wind energy in the same way that they have the concept of climate change, uh, in the same way they have... Europe and and the whole immigration thing, you know, they they kind of just stigmatize it as an issue, so that people are fed up of hearing negative things about it, and and eventually just become of the opinion that there's something wrong with it. I think that was a softening up exercise, uh, which led to Cameron and uh, and his government when they won the election last uh, yeah last May. Uh, taking that that step which they did was to shut down onshore wind and most forms of renewable energy because they had a form of public opinion behind them even though their own opinion polls showed that wind energy is overwhelmingly popular two-thirds of the country think it's a good thing and the same number of people think fracking is a bad thing but this government is forcing fracking and stopping onshore wind um so up until very recently didn't get involved in politics thought it was really just a lot of talking and we're much preferring the doing of things uh, but we did get involved in the last election, gave some money to uh, Ed Miliband and the Labour Party, gained us some headlines, got me on the front page of the Telegraph, accused of being a tax dodger. Yeah. You know, that was just political smear, and it was kind of like welcome to the world of politics uh, for me. Shows you, shows you doing something right. Yeah, doing something right, yeah, we upset somebody, yeah. And uh, our argument at the time was that we, we stayed out of politics, but... We could see what the Tories were planning to do, and they were entering our world, the world of renewable energy, and uh, we saw them as an existential threat. We said, we can't sit by and watch this happen. Same with fracking, same with the whole European thing as well, actually. I think it's a crazy uh, path that they've embarked upon. So uh, we got involved in the election uh, and in politics at that time. Is that because there was the explicit promise ahead of the election that they would effectively end new onshore wind i think they did say that didn't they yeah and we were sure that they would do that and along with it solar and you know we, we knew what was coming and um, in the coalition years they did enough harm and that was when they were held back by the Lib Dems. the government said they were going to do changes to onshore wind and there's been all the we've talked about it back in episode 21 we did a whole section about solar and the cuts to the feed-in tariff and all of that sort of thing um so what's it meant for your business and your business model i mean has it been a how have you dealt with these massive changes in terms of what ecotricity does yeah yeah it's a fair question it's a good question um as i said back in the coalition days um, the Tories were able to do quite a lot of harm to renewable energy. We saw a succession of cuts to feeding tariffs, renewable energy obligation, the renewables obligation, and um, changes in planning law. <clears throat> so probably two to three years before the election, we'd already decided that the writing was on the wall for onshore wind in England. Uh, we stopped originating new projects and uh, focused our efforts north of the border in Scotland, um, where there's a much more positive attitude. So what I'm trying to say in a slightly long-winded way is that we'd already adapted um, before the election came and before the Tories won, which is a surprise to most people anyway. But we'd already adapted uh, our main programme, which was onshore wind development. Solar, we were just getting going at um, so it wasn't a massive impact for us and we're still doing some solar um, and there are ways to make it work but it's just become more marginal north of the border in Scotland there are still some possibilities to big, uh, to build fairly big wind, wind parks uh, so we're doing some of that but uh, we've taken a new um, 
or opened a new frontier, really. Uh, green gas behind you there is uh, a little model of what we call a green gas mill. It's basically an anaerobic digestion plant, but we're feeding it in a very novel way with grass. Um, and so we can make gas and put that into the gas grid, and we've got about three in planning. And so we're focusing, refocusing, if you like, our development uh, capabilities into a new form of renewable energy. Think of us like whack-a-mole. They knock down <laughs> onshore wind, we pop up with green gas, and we see how far we can run with it. Uh, but we're also looking at Tidal Lagoon, which we announced a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we build small windmills ourselves in a factory down the road, which we opened last year, uh, <clears throat> mostly for export. Um, but we, we think we can make it work in Britain as well. Um, we're busy with the electric highway. And I suppose uh, the bigger part of Ecotricity really is our retail arm anyway. Uh, development has, uh, has always sat alongside that, so we make forms of green energy and supply it to our own customers. We're just finding different ways to make it, um, but we're still gaining customers at a very strong rate, and, uh, and we're still here. And, and you know, it's like, um, like the great man said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So is your sense that the when we look back at this little period in the UK of this you know the attacks on green energy they all just be seen as a kind of irritating blip that progress is cause, you know I, I think our sense is that governments are probably amongst the last to realize what's going on actually the you know whereas 20 years ago you might have demanded governments do things in order to bring business with it that actually increasingly it's not like that anymore is that fair do you think uh, yeah yeah i agree with all of that i do think that um this is just a bump in the road you know the tories will be here for a certain amount of time they'll do a certain amount of damage but i think the the tide is irresistible insofar as we have to fight climate change um, 200 countries of the world signed up in Paris to limiting temperature rises to, as you know, less than two degrees. Uh, to do that, we've got to stop burning fossil fuels by 2050. We absolutely have to stop burning all fossil fuels. There's no other way to do it. And that requires a revolution in the way that we live. Uh, so renewable energy is inevitable, and the Tories are just a bump in the road. You've spoken a few times about the current government um, sort of effectively, you know, killing the renewables industry. Has it, or has the renewables industry got to that stage now where potentially it can do it on its own? Hmm. Um, we're close. I would say we're close. Onshore wind in England, I would say no to that question, uh, but close. Solar? A little bit further away, but still close. Depends on how you go about it. We have this, um, this concept of generating power where people use it. We used to call it merchant wind when we built big windmills on factories. We built one for Sainsbury's in 2001, I think it was, Ford, Michelin, all sorts of people like that. Um, and when you do that, you get off the grid, so you save all of the transportation costs of the grid, and therefore you, you give yourself an advantage or you, or you cancel out a disadvantage and you can deliver the power at less than the grid cost. And it's green. It is quite special. Um, so if you go about it in certain uh, certain ways, then I think we're very close to, to being able to, to work with that support. But <clears throat> in a way, that just reinforces, I, I think, the premature nature of what the government had done because, you know, the cost was falling fast and absolutely was going to cross over. Uh, you know, we'd hit grid parity. I think solar is, is predicted by 2020, so it's not that far away. Um, the amount of support that goes to renewable energy, £100 per household per year. The amount that goes to the fossil fuel industry, according to the IMF, not according to me, £1,000 a year per family. So 
you know, the government says these things need to stand on their own two feet. That's why we're doing it. That's bogus because the fossil fuel industry has been around longer. And if anything should stand on its own two feet, that should. Or nuclear, which is a 50-year-old technology after all, but it's just about to get twice the market price for 35 years. It doesn't make any sense. So what the government says and does uh, are often different things. Um, so I think it's a premature step, but we'll, um, you know, we'll overcome the difficulty. I'm confident of that. The other side of your um, your interest, I guess, which is um, for people who, who listen to the podcast might not be aware, you're the chairman of Forest Green Rovers, the mighty Forest Green Rovers, currently second in the in the conference. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, rebranded as the National League now. It's, Sorry, it's the conference. Yeah. <laughs> It'll always be the conference. I, th- I think they missed a big trick there. You know, they should have rebranded as, as League Three. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, make the point. That would have been nice for Cambridge being stuck in League Three. <coughs> well, yeah, we're out of it now. <laughs> uh, but you, I mean, what's what's amazing about it, um, as I understand, is that it's a vegan club. Um, how on earth <laughs> have you got footballers and football fans to go vegan? Because let me tell you, Dave, if you try to do that at Brentford and my team. I'll tell you what would happen, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be pretty. Does it help that you're doing well on the pitch? Yeah, I mean. It, 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 Everything is easier when you're doing well on the pitch. You'll know that as, as fans. But our journey started in 2010 when we got involved in the club. And uh, the club was in trouble. Um, and it was our local club, over 100 years old and big part of its community and stuff. And so we went and saw the people. And uh, it was a lovely ground, lovely people. And they said, we don't need much money just to get through the summer. You know, it's a cash flow thing. And we said, well, we can do that. You know, it's about 40 grand or something. Uh, it turned out they had no idea how much money they needed and, and it was just a huge mess. And at some point in the autumn, they said to me, you really need to be the chairman. And I was like, God, I really don't need to be the chairman uh, of a football club. Thank you. Uh, but we, we were then faced with the option of walking away and seeing it fold uh, or to roll our sleeves up and make it work. So we, we dived in and found this. It was an enormous task to really turn it into a, a modern organization, which is what we've done. Uh, over the years and I can explain some of that if you're interested later but coming back to the meat question in that autumn it was the first thing I bumped into sat uh, up in the uh, in the hospitality talking to some of the staff and, and saw that we were serving our players uh, lasagna with beef in it and I was a bit like oh my god uh, that means that actually I'm part of the meat trade you know which which isn't very good and of course meat is bad for performance of athletes there's one thing you've got the environment issues as well and, and then there's the ethics issue and they said we can't do that we have to stop and the chef there was like that's fine yeah we can do that um, and they said actually we have to stop for fans as well it can't just be for the players and, and it has to be stadium wide and yeah okay we'll do that so we just did it didn't think it'd be a big deal <laughs> It was quite a big deal. <laughs> it was quite a big deal. Te- the team were struggling at the time as well, so that was a, that was the perfect storm. Uh, had a manager that a lot of the fans thought I should get rid of. Um, uh, so that was the beginning, really. Uh, red meat stopped first, then white meat stopped, and uh, started this season. We decided to take that very small step from vegetarianism to veganism. You know, we took milk and cheese and actually fish off the menu. So. But actually, um, some of our outlet foods had, were already vegan. We just hadn't made a song and dance about it, which is best, I, th- I find. You know. Our fans love our food, I should say. Visiting fans love our food. Uh, you know, we, we have, we've hosted celebrity chefs and, and, and TV programs focused on food. Uh, you know, some fans say to me they come, they come not because football's rubbish, but they come mainly for the food, you know, because they love the food. <laughs> we, we've changed the demographic of our fan base from being older and male to, to being younger, more families, more females, that kind of stuff. 
create a great atmosphere, uh, doubled attendances, food sales are up at the beginning, people said if you do this nobody's going to buy the food, you know, kind of stuff, you won't be able to do um, non-match day hospitality, catering, um, you, you, do you know what I mean, conferencing, because yeah. nobody's going to come if you don't serve meat, you know, it was one of those, uh, we have to have meat, and if, you know, kind of stuff, you can imagine the anger, um, but it, all of that has proved to be wrong. Um, and uh, you know, food sales are up, attendances are up, everybody's happy. It's, we've gained an enormous amount of PR for it. When we went vegan, I mean, the story went around the world, uh, and you know, we can't help ourselves but fall over PR opportunities as a football club because of the food and all the other stuff we do as well. You know, we've got the uh, solar-powered Mobot that uh, looks after the pitch. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. That's excellent. <laughs> He's great fun. And uh, and then we, we dug a series of drains under the pitch and we created this water loop. So whatever falls on the pitch or we put on the pitch, we capture and use it again. So we've got like a closed loop system other than uh, evaporation. Uh, obviously, it's an organic pitch. You probably know that. And solar panels and charging points for electric cars. You know, we just kind of kind of gone as far as we could go, aiming to create the greenest football club in the world but quite seriously trying to take our message to a new audience the world of football and through that the world of sport you know relatively untouched I would say by these eco messages yeah. how uh, do, do the footballers buy into it I'm sort of intrigued to know whether whether your, your, your squad are really into this or is it something they sort of go along with when they're at the ground and then seems well they like the food yeah so I mean that's a big thing I think and really uh, back in the day we we sold it to them on the basis of performance, which is something that they were very receptive to, yeah, because they want to perform their best on the pitch. And we said, you know, serious athletes don't eat red meat; it just you know slows you down, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we took a nutritional angle and a performance angle, and they were like, yeah, okay. But what they do at home, I don't know. And and you know, our big thing is not to tell people what to do, not even to tell people what to do. You know, we say the same to fans, or we used to. We don't have to anymore. You know, it's just about coming to a football game trying something different and we aren't telling you what you can and can't eat we're just saying this is our menu this is the food we believe in and we think if you try it you'll like it you've mentioned the electric highway a few times which uh, i'm guessing is a set of charging what, what is what is that and, and, and a related question that i had is i was about six or seven years ago, I was talking to someone about how many electric cars are there going to be on the road by, I think it was 2030 or something like that. And, and this person said a very low amount. And I wonder if you think that's right or whether we're about to have a sort of transformation in, in electric vehicles. All right, I'll try, and, <clears throat> I'll try and answer all of that. Electric Highway is a national network of charging points for cars. We've built them um, primarily on the motorways. We've done every motorway service station in Britain. We've done some A-roads, some ports, some airports now as we kind of expand. But we began in 2011 with this idea, after we built the Nemesis, that electric car uh, that we built. You built the, the what? Uh, the Nemesis. <laughs> yeah, you know, I heard of the Nemesis. It's a ride at Towers, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, back in 2011, after we built the Nemesis, which was uh, a sports car, supercar, uh, Britain's first electric uh, sports car. It holds the land speed record, 156 miles an hour. It's it's an awesome car, but we, back then, I wanted a a greener car. Uh, You couldn't buy an electric car in the world, it was was pre-Tesla, and we decided to make one. And uh, the result was the Nemesis, awesome car. It's now parked up in Norfolk at the Green Britain Centre. 
Um, but anyway, using that car led us to realise that uh, infrastructure was a big deal for anybody that wanted to use an electric car, where they were going to charge up. And just as we got it on the road, all the big car makers started to announce plans for electric cars, and we thought, well, we don't need to be in this space anymore. We need to be in the infrastructure space. So we uh, came up with the idea of the electric highway. And we installed basically three-pin plugs on motorway service stations back in 2011. That was all the technology there was. And we were very honest with the media about it. We said, look, we know it's going to take eight hours to fully charge a car. Uh, and it's not practical, but it's something. And it's a starting place and all this kind of stuff. Within three years, we were building um, big chargers that can charge a Nissan Leaf in 20 minutes. So it was a very rapid evolution of technology. And now we've got these uh, fast chargers. We like to think of them as electricity pumps. Uh, in every motorway service station, as I said... Um, and we're powering about 2 million miles of clean driving every month at the moment. That is, uh, inc- is increasing exponentially at the moment, as are the number of EVs on the road in Britain. So to coming to the other part of your question, uh, even the government think that uh, all new car registrations on the road in Britain by 2030 will be electric, of some kind, hybrid or pure. Even the government think that. So must, must be true. <laughs> more, more must be possible. Yeah, yeah. There, I think there is a revolution coming. Uh, that's why we really built the, the electric highways. It's been free to use uh, right up until it's still free to use now. So all these years, but we will start charging for charging in a couple of months' time, and then we'll start to use those revenues to grow it further and faster to keep up with the pace of roads. Uh, yeah, sorry, pace of demand cars coming on the road. Um, it's been a very exciting thing to do, and I think we've had a hand in this uh, electric car revolution that's just getting underway, and that's why we did it. So. What are the what are the big things that still need to change? What so things are moving technologically quite quick. Uh, we talked a bit about the, the government, you know, not being in the right place. What, what else? What are the things that really need to shift do you think for we could do with a change of government <laughs> that would be top of my shopping list if you were Santa that's what I would ask for or Satan <laughs> in this case it would be Santa wouldn't it yeah. Satan gave us this lot I think I guess I, I guess I meant more in terms of how people engage with green things so that, you know you, you can give them a car that's great and they'll go wow that's fantastic but what else is there that in, in the way people think about the environment and you know technology and that sort of thing. I get what you're saying. We, uh, you know, we've recently kind of changed how we communicate to to take this into account. Really, we we think that it's important for people to perceive the environment in a different way. And w- what we say rather facetiously, but we don't mean to be facetious. Is it's not about polar bears. Actually, we all care about polar bears. But when it comes down to it, it's about people's jobs. It's about the economy. It's about quality of life. That's what really matters to people. And so we have to present the environment as an opportunity on that front. We talk about the green economy, the million people that are employed in it, the the rate of growth of that economy. And in my view, the only sustainable economies of the future will be green. They'll, They'll be dominated by green tech. So this is a direction of travel, and we just need to get people to understand that. Um, and realise that it's not about giving stuff up and it's not about doing something because it's worthy. It's actually good for you and it's good for the planet, but just reverse the pecking order of that argument. And what do we do about the losers? Because there are losers. Like, you know, you've got whole cities uh, like Aberdeen, for example, that are so reliant on jobs in fossil fuels or places like in the steel, steel industry right now where there are jobs at risk. Well, what do you think should be done to bring... It's not all just good news. So some people are losing. And what should be done about it? Yeah, it's the same, uh, same with Trident, isn't it? The unions want to keep Trident because of the jobs. 
uh, and obviously the leadership of the Labour Party are against Trident for the moral issues. Jeremy Corden's suggestion there was to repurpose all of those engineers uh, from making weapons of mass destruction to, to making good things. And I think therein lies the answer actually you know the green economy is about creating sustainable jobs producing green tech that's that's good for our country and we do have a painful transition and but really it just means people have to stop working in one industry and start working in another so you know we we need to build a vast amount of windmills at the moment we when we used to build them at all in this country we used to import them uh that was wrong i think that was because of the way the uh, the then tory government before blair actually uh, set out to support renewable energy. Other countries like Germany have done it differently and they've got industries that build the equipment uh, that they use in their country and export it. It's just having an industrial policy, I think, that's joined up so that we can take the North Sea oil and gas expertise and apply it to renewable energy. And a lot of renewable energy is available to us offshore, so there's a good fit of skill set. Just want to go back to Paris, which you, you mentioned earlier, how did you how did you react to that? Um, did you think it's all it's cracked up to be? Do you think it's a big moment? Does it has it got impacts for your business and your business model, or same as you know another another agreement, another year, another agreement? Same old, same old. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I kind of um, I got a foot in both camps there in a way. You know, I was a little bit uh, kind of. Um, call it the conference of the parties don't they cop you know i mean they mostly cop outs aren't they and so i was a bit like yeah here comes another one um you know i was bemused by cameron's stance you know he said oh you know it has to be legally binding you know posturing presenting himself as somebody seriously interested in this issue um I wasn't expecting kind of hard targets to come from, but but I would say that, you know, the fact that 200 countries of the world uh, signed up, doing inverted commas in the air here, signed up to um, a commitment to keep global temperatures down below two degrees, I think that was a bit of a a bit of a watershed for the world. We may look back on that and say that was a bit of a turning point. Uh, I went to Kyoto, by the way, in uh, 97. Uh, I thought that was a bit of a turning point. You know, those first targets that certain countries never ratified and I don't think anybody ever hit but it was still important that we had targets Um, but coming back to Paris the acknowledgement that we need to limit global temperature rises uh, the acknowledgement implicit in that that it's man-made climate change that's driving it and it's the biggest threat that we face I think that's a powerful thing um, there weren't any specific actions to come out of that you know we all just said yeah we need to do something about this but I, I still think that's an important step if you look um, into the uh, the background of that, it means we have to stop burning fossil fuels by 2050. We have to be uh, net neutral in carbon by 2070, which means we have to start taking it out of the atmosphere. And these are these are massive kind of acknowledgements of, of what needs to change to, to keep the planet habitable. So I think it's a big deal, e- even though, um, you know, the politicians got off a bit light, really, in such that they just made some pledges and then went back and shut down the renewables industry here in Britain, for example. Do you know what I mean? There's a big conflict there for Cameron, I think, to go to that place on the world stage and you know, talk about this stuff and then come back to a country where he shut down the renewable energy industry and is, is dashing uh, for fracked gas. Well, of course, we've got to have environmental protection and we've got to get that regulation right, and we have very, very good regulation. But let's not stop an industry that around the world is bringing energy costs down for many, many millions of families and also is going to create many... You've talked a lot about being optimistic and being, you know, seeing the potential of technology and the message of your company being very much about growth and jobs and, and the UK. But what, where's, are you scared about environmental problems? Do you have a sort of sense of 
fear? What is it that sort of really motivates you to do this in the first place? Well, you know, you can't just all be about optimism and looking forward, or, or is it? I suppose it is really. I'm certainly not driven by a sense of fear. Um, I mean, it would be easy to be afraid, probably, if you thought through all the scenarios and stuff like that. But I actually like apocalypse films, you know, I love them. <laughs> Zombie apocalypse, you know, I'll watch that any day of the week. I love all that survivalist stuff, you know. So it's not like I'd be afraid to live in that kind of world. Uh, and living on the road for 10 years is all about living, you know, by your wits and being self-sustainable and that kind of stuff. So no, it's definitely not that. I just have an inherent belief in sustainability. To me, it's axiomatic, you know, that you've got to live in a way that is sustainable. Um, and, and if you don't, then something's wrong. It just seems it's like that to me. And our current version of life, you know, in these times is, is hideously unsustainable. I think it's been driven by the abundance of cheap fossil fuels, I have to say. Uh, a lot changed after the Second World War. Um, or you could say it's all within the Industrial Revolution. But whichever way you look at it, it's a moment in time. Uh, you know, it's not permanent. Um, and, uh, and we can change it. That's what I'm here for. So when, when is job, when's job done? When are you going to go, right, I've done that. I've, uh, I've done everything I set out to do. I've, my football team's in the Premier League. I've, you know, covered the nation in windmills. When do you get to that point, and what, what do you think you'll do then? I'll probably die. <laughs> That'll probably be the trigger. And the thing is, um, new ideas come along all the time, you know, and, and new challenges to old ideas as well, to be fair, I suppose. But um, in a couple of weeks' time, we're launching a mobile phone um, company, a SIM-only service called EcoTalk. We're taking the ecotricity model of bills into mills where we harness a bill that you just have to have and we create a good outcome. Um, and we're going to buy farmland and, and give it back to nature. We're focusing on providing habitats for bees, but in the process it'll be for all insects and birds. Uh, and we're going to prov- power the piece of the network we use by renewable energy. So it'll be a carbon-free service with a, with a green outcome. So that's a new idea. Uh, we think it can have a big impact. Uh, the impact of mobile phone use is actually quite large but unseen. It's surprising when you find out uh, just how much carbon is involved in a text and an email and that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> we've got some other new ideas. Cooking, the most exciting of which I can't tell you about, but we're hoping to launch mm. it in a couple of months. And it's, it's just mad. It's, it's a mad idea, but I do love it. Um, and, of course, we launched Eco Park as an idea uh, last July, this combination sports complex and green business park. Just There's just an awful lot to do. So... Uh, yeah, I don't see... Premiership, yeah, I guess that would be interesting to be in the Premiership, wouldn't it? But, uh, we see ourselves in the Championship. Uh, that's uh, not to say... There are some of us here that think we can make the Premiership. I personally focus on the Championship, so uh, yeah, that'll take a few years. Dale, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Very welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, he was nice, wasn't he, Earl? He was lovely. Oh, lovely, lovely Dale. Man. Thanks, Dale. Thank you, Dale. Yeah, very, very nice of him to spend so much time with us and uh, to see their lovely offices in lovely Stroud, which, since we went into the interview, has gone from being a beautiful, spring-like, cloudless, sunny day to snow. No, it's snowing now. It's got <laughs> it's snow horrible. all over me. I know, it's crazy. I don't like Stroud anymore. Going home. Going home. Uh, <laughs> thank so you. will be the big mistake. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening. Do let us know what you thought. Uh, you can get in contact with us uh, via Twitter at the Babble Wagon, or drop us an email at hello at sustainababble.fish, or find us on Facebook. Just look for Sustainababble. Thanks, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts and ends and intertwinkles this podcast. And I bet Arabella is happy to have a week off. We'll be back next week with episode 47. 47. Mm. Very good. 50 is rapidly approaching. We're going to have a party. Yes, we are. We should have. Didn't you say you found a Babel Hotel. I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. Somewhere in stinky London, I stumbled across Hotel Babel. I think, I think it was called Hotel Babel. It's only Babylon. (laughs) No, no, it was. It definitely had Babel in the name. So when we have our fiftieth birthday party featuring A-listers from across the globe, it will be a house of Babel or whatever it's called, and there'll be a free bar. See you there. For now, listener, have a lovely week, and we will see you next week. Bye bye. Bye.